The Westminster Confession into the 21st Century Conference is hosted annually by the Reformed Presbyterian Theological Seminary. The seminary's mission is to educate students who love the Lord Jesus Christ and His Word, equipping pastors for the ministry of the gospel and preparing others in the church for effective service in His kingdom, all within the framework of the historic Reformed faith. This message is from the conference and is a production of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. The Alliance exists to promote a biblical understanding and worldview, drawing upon the insight and wisdom of Reformed theologians from decades and even centuries gone by. We seek to provide contemporary Christian teaching that will equip believers to understand and meet the challenges and opportunities of our time and place. To hear more about the seminary or the alliance, stay tuned after this message. Through this partnership, we're able to bring you the conference Westminster Confession into the 21st Century. Today's um, presentation uh, is going to look at the 26th chapter of the Westminster Confession of Faith. That chapter is entitled "Of Communion of Saints," and the chapter maintains that believers are so united to Christ that they have fellowship in his graces, suffering, death, and glory. Also, in that same 26th chapter, union with Christ, we are told, necessarily involves union and communion with each other. So the paper has three basic goals. The first is simply to understand what the divines meant. That goal will be met by a short exposition of the Confession and Catechisms. However, that exposition will also uncover a problem. There are possible methodological differences between the confession proper and the larger catechism. To better comprehend the nature of the problem, the second goal necessitates a look backwards to Calvin and others to comprehend the groundwork behind the divine's teaching. That analysis will begin to address problems of continuity and discontinuity between Calvin, Westminster, and beyond. The third goal is to understand understand communion with Christ and each other from within the Reformed tradition in the following centuries. It will again be necessary to wrestle with issues of continuity and discontinuity to accomplish that goal. Successful completion of the task will return to the first goal strengthening our understanding of the divine's meaning. Finally, light from the historical research will illumine contemporary theological problems and suggest questions for further discussion. Let's begin by examining textual issues, specifically the chapter's location within the confession and then issues related to the original text. Whoops. Uh, one, uh, if there's not a correlation between my mouth and the PowerPoint, it's the PowerPoint's problem. <laughs> I should have been doing this while my mouth was going. But uh, like Gerald Ford, sometimes there's a, there's a synapse problem between my brain and my mouth and what I can do with my fingers. So there are some textual issues. Whoops, there's, all, there's everything that I said. Okay. The chapter location. The 26th chapter has a noteworthy location within the overall structure of the Confession of Faith. It follows elaborations on individual salvation, presentations on corporate Christian life, for example, the civil magistrate in chapter 23, marriage and divorce in 24, and then the church in chapter 25. However, the chapter on the communion of saints precedes discussion of the sacraments. It thus splits examination of the church on one side and the church's sacrament found in chapters 27 to 29 on the other. Thus, chapter 26 presents life in the church, but life that does not really fit nicely into discussions of ecclesiology proper. Some of the critical textual issues that we need to face is... Uh, uh, concerns punctuation. Now, punctuation usually is something that the New Testament guys worry about and isn't so important for us, but uh, today it is. The question is, should chapter 26 begin with two distinct sentences or rather with one sentence that has a semicolon or colon 
separation. The Carruthers critical text of the confession has a colon, and the oldest RP in American editions use a semicolon. Carruthers hints, however, that there should be a full stop here in the text. That is, because there are two different subjects, we should have two separate sentences. Among others, the mid-19th century texts, including the one contained in A.A. Hodge's commentary, that in uh, Shaw's commentary, and I pick on him because his text was recently reprinted, and the modern language version that's adopted by the RP, OP, and PCA, as well as G.I. Williamson's commentary, all of those have full stop with two different sentences. Now, at the end of the, uh, the presentation, we'll take a look and see who's right. Should it be a full stop, colon, or semicolon? But before we get to that, we need next to turn to a brief exposition of the content of the Confession and Catechisms on union and communion with Christ and with each other. So let's move Roman numeral 2 to a brief exposition of the content of 26.1 and larger and shorter catechism on communion with Christ and with our neighbors. The uh, first sentence in 26.1 reads like this. Let me actually uh, turn to the Uh, to the confession and read it so that it's done well. I should have had this in front of me. I apologize. All saints that are united to Jesus Christ, their head by his spirit and by faith, have fellowship with him and his graces, sufferings, death, resurrection, and glory, and being united to one another in love, they have communion in each other's gifts and graces, and are obligated to the performance of such duties, public and private, as do conduce to their mutual good, both in the inward and outward man. That's the first sentence of 26. Now, to have this communion, saints must be united to Jesus Christ, who is their head. This means that union with Christ is specifically, according to the divines, by his Spirit, and by faith. And there are proof texts that they append to that. The first part of this sentence refers back to chapters 7 and 8. In chapters 7 and 8, they presented Adam, who was in a covenant with God, and, of course, a covenant that was broken. The following chapter in the Confession presented Christ in his person and work. Christ, who is the covenanted head of the church. Thus the, reference, thus, the reference to Christ as the head of the church. The last part of the sentence, that is, union with Christ by his spirit and faith, also refers back to a number of previous chapters. For example, at chapter 3, the divines dealt with God's eternal decree and established that saints are effectually called through faith, a faith related to the unchangeable decree of election. From there, the steps of salvation were presented in chapters 10 through 18. Moving on to the second sentence, the divines make a connection from their union with Christ to their union with one another. Notice that the words grace appear along with the word gifts. From the believer's union with Christ and with one another, a connection is made and extended to necessary duties that we need to perform for each other. And those duties are both public and private and are related to the believer's inward and outward good. Of course, the Westminster Standards include two catechisms. And they add very important information that's essential for a complete presentation of the divine's teaching. Subpoint C, under this Roman numeral, is the teaching of the catechisms on union and communion with Christ. First of all, we'll look at the shorter catechism. The shorter catechism's first 20 questions deal with creation, original sin, and the state of human corruption. With that background established, questions 21 through 28 cover the topic of redemption. 
the angle of approach of those seven questions on redemption is simple. Redemption begins with Christ in his incarnation as the God-man, questions 21 and 22, proceeds to his classic three offices in questions 23 to 26, and all of that is encompassed within the overarching uh, uh, analysis of his states of humiliation and exaltation in questions 27 and 28. But as we look at the shorter catechism, we notice a transition at questions 29 and 30. In that transition, the catechism asks how the work of Jesus Christ is applied to the believer. At question 29, the first part of the answer is that the application of salvation is a work of the Holy Spirit. Specifically, the Holy Spirit applies Christ's work by working faith in us and thereby uniting us to Christ in our effectual calling. Thus, we can see that the terms effectual calling and union with Christ are grammatically equivalent in the Shorter Catechism. This construction is in theological agreement, continuity with other Reformed teachings at this time. The benefits that flow from union with Christ or effectual calling are soteriological categories. That is, justification, adoption, and sanctification, as well as several other benefits. The Shorter Catechism is structured in a similar, although truncated, fashion to the confession. That is, from creation to fall, to Christ the mediator, and finally to, sorry, finally to effectual calling, reflecting chapters 4 through 10. Now turn with me quickly to the larger catechism. And the larger catechism is not only larger, it's more complex. Larger catechism, question 58, begins analysis of the application of Christ's benefits. However, it's question 65 that structures the flow of this very large section, setting the model for the larger catechism through question and answer 90. Question 65 is one that uh, deserves a reading again. What special benefits do the members of the invisible church enjoy by Christ? And a short answer. The members of the invisible church by Christ enjoy union and communion with him in grace and glory. Very short, very concise, and that's the larger catechism. That's good. Question 65 asks about these special benefits. These are special benefits obtained by members of the invisible church. They're special because not all members of the church receive these benefits, only those who have been united to Christ. And these benefits are summarized by two very important words, the words union and communion. And these special benefits are experienced in two realms, the realm of grace here on earth and the realm of glory. At question 66, we have the exposition of what was presented in 65, the nature of union with Christ. And significantly, the catechism connects the believer's effectual calling here that's the last phrase of the answer, and the work of grace. Union with Christ is a work of grace, one that is not obtainable by human effort. Furthermore, the union is characterized as spiritual and mystical, avoiding the notion of a corporal or physical union. Maybe I better read 66 as well. What is that union which the elect have with Christ? The union which the elect have with Christ is the work of God's grace, whereby they are spiritually and mystically, yet really and inseparably, joined to Christ as their head and husband, which is done in their effectual calling. Thus, it is real, it is inseparable, 
even if it's mystical. The phrase underlines that while something can be mystical, at the same time it can be real. Something that is invisible does not mean that it does not exist or that it is merely imaginary or unreal. That which is spiritual may be just as real as that which is material. As a matter of fact, the Catechism teaches that the spiritual can be more real than the material because the Catechism calls this union inseparable and we can be separated from all material objects. Now, the first proof text for question 66, and I have to admit that after Dr. Pruto's uh, lecture, I, I don't know what to do with proof texts. <laughs> the first proof text for question 66, that union with Christ is a work of God's grace, takes us back directly to the proof text with the confession. At this place in the confession, the proof text, the, the operative proof text, is Ephesians 2, 5, and 6. But in the larger catechism, the connection is picked up at Ephesians 6 and then extends the quotation to verses 7 and 8. So the larger catechism here, I think, is working very self-consciously with the proof texts. Also in this question... Perhaps you notice that Christ is referred to in the larger catechism by the term husband as well as by the term head. This is an expansion beyond the confession proper. The additional bridegroom imagery is rich with biblical content. Christ is thus presented as the provider for the elect, the lover of the elect, and the defender of the elect. The proof text in the larger catechism of Ephesians 5, 23, and 30, not found in the confession, underlines that Christ is Savior of the body. And some of the uh, translations that were operative at that time are very different from what we read in the NAS or uh, NIV. The following question in the larger catechism extends the analysis going on to the nature and theme of effectual calling. Look now with me at question 69 of the larger catechism, and once again I'll read. What is the communion in grace which the members of the invisible church have with Christ? The communion in grace which the members of the invisible church have with Christ is their partaking of the virtue of his mediation in their justification, adoption, sanctification, and whatever else in this life manifests their union with him. At larger catechism, question 69, there is a return to the special benefits for believers in their union with Christ. The question is worded in such a manner that it is clear that it is meant to be a return to question 65, picking up on the theme of communion. Here, in 69, communion in grace specifically envelops the soteriological categories of justification, adoption, and sanctification. And then at question 74, on adoption, they connect back to 69 and earlier to being in Christ, in Christ's glory. Turn with me now to question 77 and the specific uh, issue of the relationship between justification and sanctification. And this will uh, relate to the overall theme of this morning's lecture. Wherein do justification and sanctification differ? And now they have a long answer. Can you bear with me? All right. Although sanctification be inseparably joined with justification, yet they differ in that God in justification imputes the righteousness of Christ. In sanctification, his spirit infuses grace and enables to the exercise thereof. In the former, sin is pardoned. In the other, it is subdued. The one doth equally free all believers from the 
revenging wrath of God, and that perfectly in this life, that they never fall into condemnation. The other is neither equal in all nor in this life perfect in any except seminary professors who uh, grow up to perfection. <laughs> Question 77, concerning justification and sanctification, the categories seem to be mixed up until this point, but by 77 they want to make sure that they speak clearly concerning distinguishing between the two. As we continue ahead, question 82. Boy, I wonder if I should have been... Yep, I should have been clicking. Okay. Question 82 deals with saints' communion with Christ in glory. Question 82 asks us, what is the communion and glory which the members of the invisible church have with Christ? Please think about that question for a minute and formulate in your minds an answer to that question. Now, I know some of you have the larger catechism memorized and you guys can't cheat and tell us the answer. Question 82, how do saints commune with Christ in glory? What do we have with them in glory? Would you formulate an answer that sounds like this? Saints anticipating, participating with Christ in glory at their death and resurrection. Doesn't that sound like a reasonable answer? Well, it does sound reasonable to me, but it's not how the divines want to handle it. As a matter of fact, the divines at this point word the answer in the present tense with a present focus. What is the communion in glory, which the members of the invisible church have with Christ. Even the way the question is worded, I would still expect an answer something like this. Members of the invisible church presently live lives of joy anticipating the future communion and glory after death. However, the divines don't emphasize the future alone. Specifically, they make sure that believers focus on the present aspects as well as the future, which we'll see um, is an important issue to determine continuity and discontinuity back with Calvin and into the future. And just so you know the real answer instead of my made-up ones, here's the real answer to the question. The communion and glory which the members of the invisible church have with Christ is in this life, immediately after death, and at last perfected at the resurrection and day of judgment. Now, very recently, Derek Thomas, the former colleague, rightfully said about this question, quoting him, clearly what is in view here is a realization of the fact that something of the future glory, the future eschaton, is already present in the consciousness of the believer. This large section in the Catechism ends at question 90 with these closing, closing words. And this, all previous analysis, is the perfect and full communion which the members of the invisible church shall enjoy with Christ in glory. Thus, it seems to me, that the theme of union with Christ is woven through the fabric of these 25 questions in the larger catechism, comprising about 13% of the entire catechism. However, however, immediately before us is a problem. It's a structuring problem. There is an apparent difference between the ordering and analysis found in the larger catechism and that found in the confession at chapter 26. In the confession, and if you have a, the table of contents somewhere near, at chapter 10 you have effectual calling. However, analysis of union with Christ follows 16 chapters later. In the larger catechism, however... Analysis of union with Christ, effectual calling, fo uh, calling, follows the notion of union with Christ. 
Let me uh, say it again. Questions 65 and 66 of the larger catechism, union with Christ. Then, larger catechism 67, excuse me, effectual calling. Then, uh, no, I got it backwards again. Effectual calling, then union with Christ. So recognizing these differences, we've got to see why they're different and how they came to be. I would submit to you that for the larger catechism, question and answer 69 is what we could call a theological architectonic for the structuring of their teaching on union with Christ, communion with saints, and thereby soteriology. Let me read 69. I, I already did 69, didn't I? I don't have to do it again. In 69, it says... We partake of the virtues of Christ in their justification, adoption, and sanctification in terms of communion in grace with Christ. So uh, bear with me. Keep that in mind as I continue to talk about these things and see if we can come to a resolution. It seems now that we have uh, some problems that we need to deal with concerning the union, uh, the notion of communion, union and communion with Christ. If there is this difference, then the research that we've seen so far supports a colleague's recently published thesis. His thesis goes like this, that the Westminster Standards do not teach... Let's see if I... There we go that the Westminster Standards do not teach an explicitly articulated ordo salutis. Now, by, uh, by the way, that, that phrase ordo salutis simply means the application of Christ's redemption that was already purchased in history. Or another way to say it, ordo salutis, is that you need to be regenerated before you're glorified. There's got to be a certain order. The colleague continues to argue, saying this. Some semblance of an ordo might seem to be implied at points in the confession or by the sequence of pertinent chapters and by questions and answers in the catechisms. But a comparison of the three documents, which we've just done, the catechisms and the confession, reveals differences. The standards do not provide a uniform sequence. That's a hard statement made by a Presbyterian. And significantly because of the structure of the larger catechism, the colleague concluded that, quoting him, within the scope of the application of redemption to the elect then, union and communion with Christ are seen as most basic, encompassing all other benefits. My own analysis is that uh, the colleague is in part at least, correct. That is, the confession and the catechism do provide different sequencing for the ordo salutis. Now, even if, it's pos- it, even if I'm possibly right, we've got to answer some questions. They've got to be addressed because uh, who are you, Rick Gamble, to say that they've messed up? Have they messed up? Uh, I, I guess I better be sophisticated again. Uh, are the documents, in fact, contradictory? How's that? Is that a little better? Can it be proved that the differences between the confession and the larger catechism is an intentional difference? Was it perhaps a case of theological sloppiness? Now, if I were to ask Dr. Spear his opinion, he wrote in there that, ha, do you see that? That's Dr. Spear's contribution to this morning's lecture. It's, it's not theological sloppiness. That's really not possible. So what are the answers? I believe and I hope to demonstrate this morning that there are answers to these questions. And to answer these questions, we need to move to the second goal of this morning's lecture, to better understand uh, the catechism and the confession. To do that, we move to the third Roman numeral, looking at union with Christ in the Reformed tradition from John Calvin until the time 
of the Westminster Confession of Faith. Moving back in time, we go to John Calvin and briefly look at the nature of faith as found in the Institutes. Faith, for Calvin, was related intimately with union with Christ. Union with Christ and faith hold a central, a decisive role in the application of redemption. For Calvin, the believer's appropriation of the application of redemption made by Christ was done by faith. That is, union with Christ was neither apart from faith, nor was it prior to faith, but is given with faith. In fact, was inseparable from faith. Faith for Calvin was worked by the Holy Spirit, and by that sovereign and efficacious working, union is forged by the Spirit's working faith in us, a faith that, using Calvin's words, puts on Christ. And faith is the bond of that union seen from our side. Looking at union with Christ, Calvin formulated his extensive discussion of union with Christ in a characteristically careful manner. That's found in the Institute's Book 3, Section 1 and following. There he presented union with Christ and faith, faith created by the Spirit. The nature of faith was defined in 3.1.3. And faith for Calvin most beautifully, is always of the heart. And if we have time, I have about a thousand quotes from Calvin that I'd like to read, but I'm going to pass just because of time, and if there's time at the end, I'll stand and read some Calvin. Faith is of the heart. Then in chapters 3 through 10, Calvin dealt with regeneration by faith, regeneration in the Christian life, what that means, and As I look at it, and there's room for disagreement, it seems that chapters 3 through 10 under this heading are functionally equivalent to dealing with sanctification. And after those 10 chapters, spending nearly 200 pages in the Institutes, Calvin then went on to justification by faith. Then election, chapter 21, and finally, consummation, the final chapter in that section. To summarize Calvin's very complex and careful structuring, and you know from the history of the Institutes that he kept fudging and moving things around until finally, it was only the final edition that he says, now I'm done. As he structures it, he first discusses the change that takes place within the sinner, that is, our inner renewal, our personal transformation, before discussing the definitive change affected in our legal status, that is, our, to use technical terms, our forensic status, quorum deo. To say, uh, to summarize in another way, all told, Calvin treats sanctification, and in fact at some length, before justification. One reason for this structuring is that Calvin dealt with faith distinct from forensic justification. He did not hold to what will be a standard hallmark of a priority of justification to sanctification. For Calvin, the matter will be one of theological indifference. How can I say that? I can say that because for Calvin, both justification and sanctification are controlled by the prior architectonic principle of union with Christ. And we see this very clearly in Institutes chapter 3, 11, and 6. There in in a debate with a fellow named Oziander, Calvin argues with quite a bit of light as well as heat that Christ cannot be rent asunder. There's no partial union with Christ. As the believer is united to Christ, he is wholly united to the whole 
Christ who is seated in glory. So in conclusion, it's argued uh, by the colleague's thesis that Calvin's approach contrasts conspicuously with subsequent Reformed and Lutheran theology, where justification always precedes sanctification. Calvin, unlike post-Reformation Orthodoxy, did not stress, did not stress a priority of justification to sanctification. Other colleagues uh, agree and have said this just as recently. Calvin taught that while it was theologically necessary to distinguish between justification and sanctification, this time I'm quoting from Mark Deaver, they were never separable in the true believer's experience. Well, to help understand uh, the development to the time of the Westminster Confession of Faith, turn now with me, please. Whoops, there they are. To this guy. His name is Johannes Valabius. He was born in 1586, died in 1629. I've had his picture uh, on my wall since uh, we lived in Basel, and I, but I wasn't able to do a PowerPoint on it. But uh, if, I, if, I, if I just had a little more time, we'd do show and tell. But he's, he's good looking. <laughs> and uh, he wrote a Compendium Theologiae Christianae, and he's an important transitional figure between Calvin and the Westminster Confession. Studied at Basel, the source and place of all true theological wisdom, and in 1618 became professor of Old Testament. His Compendium Theologia Christiana appeared in 1626. It's a clear and concise work that was used extensively in the 17th century and was translated almost immediately into both English and Dutch. What was his theological climate? In general, the theological tenor of the age after Calvin saw the rise of a guy named uh, Jacobus Arminius, 1560-1609, who had been Theodore Beza's student, followed by the presentation of his followers of a, a document called The Remonstrance, which appeared in 1610. The important synod of Dort was called in response to that crisis and answered it in 1618 and 1619. So the theological climate has changed from the time of Calvin. Then let's take a look secondly at his theological structuring. Valabius's compendium has a different organizing principle from both Calvin's Institutes and the Westminster Confession of Faith. Book 1 began with the doctrine of God, including creation, fall, and sin, chapters 1 through 12. Valabius then mentioned the moral, ceremonial, and political law, then turned to the person and work of Christ in chapters 13 to 19. Valabius then introduced what he termed the state of grace, which involved the common call to that state, chapter 20, and the covenant of grace in chapter 21. He moved into the sacraments, whoops, okay. He moved into the sacraments and the Lord's Supper, baptism and the Lord's Supper. After that, he presented ecclesiology proper in three chapters. Finally, he addresses union with Christ in chapter 28, followed by faith and justification. Rather different ordering. Thirdly, uh, very briefly, because it relates to our topic, how does he handle the notion of the covenant of grace and the covenant of works, which has uh, been touched on by the other speakers? By this time in Reformed theology... A distinction had been made between the covenant of grace and the covenant of works. By those contrasting terms, Valabius did not understand the Old Testament as a covenant of works and the New Testament as a covenant of grace. Rather, the covenant of grace was also observable in the Old Testament. Valabius further taught that the covenant of grace was specifically with the elect after the fall, which as you perhaps remember, according to many scholars, is supposedly in contrast to Swingley, Bullinger, and Calvin and represents a grave departure from that earlier good theology. Well, whether or not it's a departure from the earlier theology, the fact is it's in agreement with Westminster. So uh, very clearly we see Valabius and Westminster in continuity. 
Then he deals with special calling. Um, and as he deals with special callings, he recognized that this notion has different kinds of definitions similar to other words. He says we could call it actual election, effective calling, internal calling. Now, quoting from Valabius, the form of special calling is a gracious action toward man. Not only the enlightenment of the mind, but the changing of the heart of stone into flesh, or turning man to obedience. And saving faith was an effect of God's special calling. It is a gift applied by saving faith. Then he went to justification. The indirect effects of calling which result from faith are justification, sanctification, assurance of salvation, and Christian freedom, says Valabius. And this phraseology sounds exactly like the standards. Moving quickly to justification, Valabius used a, an analogy of the Son, which he took directly from Calvin in the Institutes. So for uh, Calvin, there's this beautiful part on the sun and heat and light. Without mentioning Calvin, Valabius says, to understand justification, it's like the sun with its heat and light. And he says, although faith does not exist by itself, but is united to works, nevertheless, faith alone justifies. Just as the sun does not exist alone in the heavens, but it alone makes day. Uh, in accordance with Calvin, Valabius says, sanctification is related to justification as light is related to the sun. Valabius recognized the complexity of the terms with which he was dealing, as well as their multiple interrelationships. Sanctification, he says, is also called, now I'm quoting him, regeneration, making new, conversion, Penitence, repentance, and glorification. But, he said, these words are ambiguous. Regeneration, making new, and conversion may equally well mean either calling in the gifts of faith or the newness of life by which man really dies to sin and lives in righteousness. In the first sense, they precede justification and are one of its causes. In the second, they follow it and are its results. Therefore, 60 years after the final edition of Calvin's Institutes, Valabius says that there is some ambiguity. Moving to, just, uh, uh, to a very brief criticism of Valabius, um, I find that his writing is inferior both to Calvin and to the Westminster Divines. As he deals with calling, um, he uh, refers the efficient cause of our calling to the entire Trinity, specifically, though, Christ the Lord in the days of his ministry on earth personally calls sinners, and here's where I find the criticism, and who now calls them by the agency of ministers. Now, the criticism isn't that the agency of ministers is used, but what I find in Valabius is a truncated view of the work and the person of the Holy Spirit so beautifully brought out by Calvin. Warfield calls Calvin the theologian of the Holy Spirit. That wasn't lost on the Westminster Divines either, but that part is slightly truncated in Valabius. Moving on to a name perhaps better known, Johannes Coxeus, 1603 to 1669. He wrote a Doctrine of the Covenant and Testament of God, published in 1648, right at the same time as the Westminster Confession of Faith. And Coxeus is a pivotal figure who sheds light on the theological atmosphere at the time that the divines were debating in England and helps us to see continuity with uh, Calvin in the past and directions for the future. First of all, Coxeus' theological method. He represents a significant uh, development in the doctrine of the covenant. Of course, the doctrine of the covenant has been the bedrock of reform teaching from the time of Zwingli and Calvin. And building on those earlier writers, Coxeus worked out a biblical theological, redemptive historical covenant theology. Coxeus brought analysis of this important biblical teaching into new, more sophisticated levels. He had a self-conscious exegetical method 
that focused on the covenant, and from that he developed an entire theological paradigm. Very briefly, Coxeus thought that the covenant involved three phases or parts. Whoops, I don't have that. Three phases or parts. First, the covenant of works made with Adam. However, that covenant was breached by human sin. Then God decided to institute, through an intertrinitarian pact, the covenant of grace. Third, that new covenant was actually accomplished in time through Jesus Christ. And this new covenant could not be broken, as the covenant of works was, because it was sealed in the suretyship of Jesus Christ himself. Although Christ did not come in the Old Testament, nevertheless, the new covenant was still promulgated in the Old Testament, which he calls its first economy, in which circumcision and Passover prefigured salvation through the death of Christ, which is its second economy. And in the economy with Christ, all vestiges of the covenant of works were removed. We can imagine that there would be great controversy as a result of his theological method. And it's very important for our understanding of the doctrine of union and communion with Christ at the time of Westminster and its subsequent development coming to our own days. Coxeus' theological method moved focus away from pre-temporal decisions toward the need for obedience within a a general understanding of God's saving works in history. The debate was furious. And this second goal, understanding from Calvin to Valabius to Coxeus, um, I think is finished. We're now up to that time. The third goal is to understand how this develops after the time of the Westminster Confession. Now, some of you uh, colleagues who presented papers are probably going as crazy as I am dealing with, uh, you know, 100 years of complex theological development in 100 seconds, and I just want to keep making it more uh, uncomfortable for all of us and move ahead. Herman Witsius, 1636 to 1708. The purpose of my lectures today, uh, uh, of course, is historical, but I do want to see a bottom line of how this means something for us and that's where I want to go and that's why I'm machine gunning. On Witsius, you have a man here who stands uh, in comparison with John Owen according to J.I. Packer. Uh, Witsius is described by Packer as a landmark writer, as one who summarizes an entire era And Witsius was in frenetic correspondence with other writers, English, Dutch, all over the place, Perkins, Ames. He disagreed with most of the British and wrote an important uh, book that's been fairly recently republished called The Economy of the Covenant Between God and Man. Again, let's take a look at his theological climate. As Reformed doctrine developed, Coxeus's theological method had its strong opponents. And one reason was Coxeus himself. He insisted that the only way to do theology was to set out Christian truths in terms of the historical unfolding of God's covenant dealings. Well, it doesn't leave much wiggle room. And in the Netherlands especially, there was a 50-year theological bloodbath with the Coxeans on one hand and everybody else in the whole world on the other. Now, Witsius wisely saw wisdom in both theological worlds. He follows Coxeus in terms of organizing principles, but knew that there was more to the development of theology than only the covenant. And from there he goes, uh, let's us take a quick look at his view of election and calling, which relates to our topic. From election... uh, Uh, He uh, deals with, Witsius deals with election as always, instead of just plain election, election to glory. From election to glory, he goes to effectual calling. And he acknowledges the difference between an internal call and an external. He acknowledges that the external call requires the internal call to bring someone into communion with Christ. That internal call is, quoting him, by the powerful operation of the Spirit, 
And it is in that internal call that the believer is converted. In this effectual calling, the believer is called to communion with Christ, which he describes in most beautiful terms, terms of marriage between Christ and the elect soul. It is from this communion that we have with Christ that there is a communication of all the benefits of Christ, both in grace and in glory, to which we as believers are likewise called. He makes one nuance, not underlined by the Westminster Divines, that since Christ cannot be separated from his Father and his Spirit, we are at the same time called to communion with the undivided Trinity. And from this communion, as all the elect are partakers of one and the same grace, they are all likewise called to mutual uh, communion with each other. Thus, there's continuity with the Westminster Assembly. This effectual calling, whereby the elect are called to communion with God and his Christ, and are regenerated, is, in fact, an excellent life. So for him, it's not exclusively forensic. Moving to regeneration, he, uh, uh, Witsius grants that divine regeneration is, to use his word, mysterious. In regeneration, quoting him, a new life is put into them, resulting from a gracious union with God and his spirit. Christ, together with the Father and the Spirit, is the meritorious and exemplary cause of our regeneration. Christ declares the Spirit to be the author of regeneration. He underlines that John 3, 5. But also, this term regeneration is, quoting him, of ambiguous signification. Sometimes it is blended with sanctification. And by regeneration is understood that action of God whereby man, who has now become the friend of God and endowed with spiritual life, acts in a righteous and holy manner from infused habits. And now move with me to glorification. Important for understanding communion of saints is how Witsius structured eschatology and general glorification in particular. Found at the end of book three of this two-volume work, it follows the sections we analyzed on election, calling, and regeneration. But it precedes the fourth book on the church. So glorification or eschatology is not at the end, but before eschatology, uh, ecclesiology. For Witsius, glorification is begun in this life. Here on earth, the believer is granted holiness and even what he calls the vision of God. Specifically, he acknowledged that the utmost happiness of the life to come consists in the perfect vision of God. And yet, believers are privileged here on earth to begin that later life. Such vision is by faith and of things not seen. And believers, in fact, according to Witsius, do not behold God's perfections in general, but quoting him, likewise, they behold them as belonging to them and become theirs now for the sake of Christ. There is continuity here with the Westminster Confession. And so far, I've seen continuity between Calvin and these successors. Valabius does speak of special calling as changing the heart. Valabius, after Calvin, sees sanctification as complex, and I wouldn't use the word ambiguous here. I think our president might not like if I used ambiguous, but he uses it. Witsius says the term regeneration is, again, ambiguous in the English translation. It is complex, and I'm pushing these things as you can see, that will be the answer to the difference in the Westminster Confession. But let's deal with one more important character, one best known to us here in America. His name is Francis Turretin, 1623 to 1687, who wrote a small theological work called The Institutes of Elenctic Theology. I had that in my arm yesterday, and somebody grabbed me and said, What's Elenctic? And uh, I said, have you ever heard a sermon? And he said, yes. I said, well, you've heard elenctics. That's what elenctics means. It's, it's preaching. It's admonition. It's the institution of 
proto-theology. Now, he is important for us because American Presbyterianism used this as their systematic textbook, at least Northern Presbyterian. I guess there was a Southern Presbyterian too. They didn't use him uh, until in the North, we, uh, Charles Hodge wrote his own book. So he's very important for us uh, Northern Presbyterians. What is the structure of Turretin's Institutes? The first volume has the greatest number of topics. There are ten and in you know, this massive book, he covers theology, scripture, the one and triune God, God's decrees, creation, God's providence, angels, prelapsarian, Adam, sin, human free will. It's the second volume that's important for us. The second volume covers God's law and the covenant of grace and its twofold economy in the Old and New Testament, which again sounds very similar to the earlier writer that we just saw. Then he goes to the person and state of Christ, Christ's mediatorial office, calling and faith, justification, sanctification, and good works in the 11th through 17th topics. The whole third volume has only two topics. That is the church and last things. Now as we uh, look at volume two, his analysis of communion with Christ, it's found at topic 12, and he first examined the origin and meaning of words like covenant, testament, and gospel then proceeded to the nature of the covenant of grace. His structure for the communion of saints is now considered classical. And I see that uh, my time's going a lot faster. I'm trying to make my mouth move as fast as I can, and it seems that the clock is moving faster than my mouth. So I'm, I'm going to stop right there and move toward the end because you've been real patient, and I think I only have about five minutes left in the formal part. Is that right? Okay, he's so gracious. Dr. Pruto talked about sometimes people putting works in front of grace. I think he had our president in mind. Wait, that was supposed to be funny. That was, that was, wait a minute, that was a joke, okay? This is a joke, levity. Um, as, as we continue to um, look at the development of doctrine, I want to go back to um, my colleague's thesis uh, who uh, presents Calvin's views of uh, union with Christ underlining what we saw in book three and it's um, his thesis that in the work after Calvin not Westminster particularly but after Westminster he says that there is a shading to use his word a shading of Calvin's outlook that in fact Christ fades into the background in uh, later Reformed theology. I'd like to try to uh, deal with that thesis and, uh, and answer the questions that I've asked so far. First of all, to understand these complex notions, we have to remember that with Coxeus, there has been and continues to be in the Reformed tradition a debate concerning theological method those who stress biblical theology and those who stress a more classic structuring of systematic theology. The methods seem to be competing. Both methods have strengths and weaknesses. But I am absolutely convinced that they shouldn't be seen as competing methods, but as correlative. Who was that? Corollary. Who? Who? who made, was it you? Somebody who had a Canadian... Scott Clark. Uh, they're, uh, they're correlative, they're related to each other. They shouldn't be seen as competing. Secondly, there's been a lot of uh, ink spilled on Calvin and the English Puritans that they don't have the same theology either. By the time of Calvin's death, things had changed in England. There, the movement had, uh, in England had gone from theological controversy to the development of what is commonly called practical Puritan piety. And the flowering of that sweetly scented literature probably spawned the notion of a discontinuity, wrongly called a drastic alteration by the famous scholar Perry Miller between continental theology and English theology. And one of the best-known statements on this topic made now a quarter century ago by R.T. Kendall was this quip, Westminster theology hardly deserves to be called Calvinistic especially if that term is to imply the thought of Calvin himself. 
So arguments put forward for theological discontinuity have been met and demonstrated to be erroneous. For example, George Marsden has answered Perry Miller, and R.T. Kendall has been thrashed by a number of substantial scholars, including my former colleague Roger Nicole. And it's in, it's in Witsius, uh, whom I've mentioned, where you have, in as beautiful an expression as possible, a wedding of Puritan piety and theological precision. So there's no ground for that type of argument. And the continuity between Calvin, Westminster, and those who uh, can uh, go after them, uh, the continuity is clear. And I think for this group to, uh, to assert continuity is not going to be one of a great, uh, great issue, great moment. It seems that for Calvin and the Westminster divines, for example, the heartbeat of soteriology is found in union with Christ by the work of the Holy Spirit. For them, soteriology impacts ecclesiology. It corrects those inside and outside of the Reformed tradition who assert that Calvin and Westminster have different understandings of faith. So let me wrap it up. Remember I began asking, should we have two sentences or one in chapter 26? It seems to me, it seems to me that we should have one sentence and we shouldn't have two because union with Christ is communion with each other. The Westminster divines did not mean for a full stop separation. Certainly if they did, they would be out of conformity with Calvin and with the later divines. Also, there's room for further discussion. Uh, Scott Clark mentioned uh, the receding of the importance of imputation in much contemporary theology. Well, if we look at question and answer 71 of the larger catechism, the imputation of Christ's righteousness is taught so clearly. If we look at Calvin's Institutes 3.11.2, there Calvin defines justification as consisting in remission of sins and the imputation of Christ's righteousness. So if we had another hour or two, we would see that imputation is not ancillary. Also, because time is up, we won't be able to. But I'm convinced that uh, understanding our past helps to stand against the movement of the new perspectives on Paul. In the new perspectives on Paul, there's a category shift. In that movement, ecclesiology, not soteriology, becomes the paradigm of justification and thus the main emphasis, supposedly, of a book like Romans. To speak theologically, bah humbug. I want to end with underlining the good news. I've spent this uh, long hour, you've been so patient, looking at complexities and nuancing. But woe is me if we don't end rejoicing. Let's do it with some quotations from some of the men I've cited. Abrakel said this, This whole thing is wondrous beyond comparison. These are the elements of all true happiness. The nature of this union is inexpressible and can better be experienced by the believer than expressed in words. Since believers are partakers of Christ in all his benefits, how heartily and continually they ought to be exercised thinking about this union. Our communion with Christ is in fact a great, great benefit and blessing. All praise to him. You have been listening to the Westminster Confession into the 21st Century, a production of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals in partnership with Reformed Presbyterian Theological Seminary. The Reformed Presbyterian Theological Seminary's mission is to educate students who love the Lord Jesus Christ and his word, equipping pastors for the ministry of the gospel, and preparing others in the church for effective service in his kingdom, all within the framework of the historic Reformed faith. For more information on the seminary, call 1-866-778-7338. That's 1-866-778-7338. Or you can write 
to 7418 Penn Avenue, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, 15208, or visit online at www.rpts.edu. The Alliance is a listener-supported ministry that's known for teachings such as the Philadelphia Conference on Reformed Theology, the International Council on Biblical Inerrancy, as well as the nationally syndicated broadcasts, the Bible Study Hour, Every Last Word, God's Living Word, or Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible. For more information on the Alliance, call 1-800-488-1888. Again, that's 1-800-488-1888. Or you can write the Alliance at Box 2000, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, 19103, or visit us online at www.alliancenet.org. Ask for your free resource catalog featuring a wealth of materials from outstanding Reformed teachers and theologians. Thank you again for your continued support of this ministry.